This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Patterson Program, where you'll learn how to improve your health from the inside out. And now, your host, Clint Patterson. G'day and thanks again for listening to the podcast. It's a real pleasure to be able to create information and share it with you wherever you might be now, whether you're in your car or you're at the gym or you're going for a walk or on your way to Bikram Yoga. Wow, how cool would that be? But the point is that I'm very grateful that you download it and listen to these podcasts. If you're enjoying them, please go over to iTunes and give us a five-star review. That would help in search engines and so forth, help other people find this information. I think I always forget to make that call to action because I'm busy just trying to crank out the content. But it would mean a lot to me if you could give us a five-star review on iTunes and um, that helps me get the message out to more people. Now today I am going to present in this episode a recording that I just did with Anna Chisholm. She runs the Big Impact podcast and it has mostly a plant-based audience. And she reached out to me and said, hey, love to have you as a guest. And so we recorded this podcast and I said, give me a copy so I can share it on my podcast with my lovely group. So I hope you enjoy this today. Some of the content you may have heard me talk about before, but um, for her audience, it's all new. So I just want to give you a heads up on that. My story, you may know well by now, but I hope it's not uh, overly labored for you and that uh, you'll still learn a lot in this podcast. So here we go over to Anna. Hey, Clint, how are you going? I'm great. How are you? That's good. I'm really well. I've taken the day apparently off work today because my my babysitter is traveling around Europe. So we'll do our best with a four-year-old in the background. (laughs) Yeah, my little two-and-a-half-year-old might make a guest appearance as well. Let's hope so. She's a bit of a star. Oh, good, good. I hope to meet her. (laughs) Um, Look, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast. I came across your podcast probably a few months ago now and I've literally been like devouring your episodes ever since. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And, you know, I I guess I have a special or a soft spot for Australian podcasters. Um, So I love kind of coming across new things I can listen to, you know, when I'm doing the washing up or driving the kids to daycare, you know, all those sorts of things. Yes. Are you a, like are you a bit of a podcast nut yourself? Are you a consumer of podcasts? Not much. I don't really have time. In fact, the times that I think about listening to podcasts is in my car. I often do long trips for my work. More, why well, I say more work. A lot of people know me for this work that we're talking about on this call, but <laughs> I also do stand-up comedy and I've been doing stand-up comedy for 16 years. So I consider that my job or my day job, okay. if you like. And um, I often, you know, will drive two or three hours here or there for a show or I'm at an airport or something like that. And during those times, instead of listening to podcasts over the last sort of six months, I've been creating content instead, either for my own podcast or for my mailing list or for my community forum. And um, yeah, so I've gone into, um, I think we go through cycles where we go from you know, a heavy creation sort of phase. And then we want to learn a lot and we go into a learning phase for a long period of time. So at the moment I'm in creation, 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 but when I feel like I need to refuel, yeah, then I'll, I'll start to uh, get back into the uh, podcasts and I'll, I'll read a ton of books. Yeah. So the cycle that I'm in is content creation right now, yeah, getting cool. all this stuff in my head and getting it out to people who uh, yeah. are following my work. Yeah. That's awesome. I was at a podcasting conference that the ABC put on a couple of months ago now, and it's just so exciting to see this sort of medium expanding and the momentum behind it and such a good way to, as you said, get content out there in a really accessible way for people. Well, yeah, I mean, I rarely, if ever, listen to the radio. I just find it painful uh, listening to <laughs> people talk crap about things that I don't yeah. care about. No one's creating any value. It's just garbage talk separated by garbage advertisement for things that I consider garbage. 
So yeah. there are, you know, radio channels now that you could subscribe to with apps, you know, things like that where you can create your own channels for music. And, and so I like to do things like that. Um, and if I'm not doing stuff like that, then, uh, yeah, uh, podcasts are the way to go. Or, you know, just trying to listen to information that's relevant to your life and not just general crap. Absolutely. I love that. I think, you know, the, the past couple of years for me, especially after having kids, I find, you know, our time so valuable. I find myself more and more like living really intentionally. Like I'm not just happy yeah. to go through the motions. It's like I am specifically choosing now where I want to direct my focus. So. Yeah, yeah, well said. Completely relate to that. Every moment feels precious and it's really mm -hmm. accentuated with kids because your time to yourself becomes diminished massively. And so when you do have a short time to yourself, you think, how can I get the most return on this piece of time. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. A two and a half year old would be keeping you mighty busy, I would say. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh and we got a six month old at the moment as well. Oh, so uh, really? yeah. Oh so, cool. Yeah. Oh that's nice. Look, there's so many things I want to talk to you about today, but what I'd really love to start with, I guess, is taking it back I guess to where it began for you and, and tell us a bit about your health story and, you know, how this all came about. I'm really mm. interested in that. Yeah, so if people don't know anything about me, then um, my sort of cross to bear in this life was rheumatoid arthritis or still is depending on how you view the way it works in the body. And uh, for me it started well before I actually got the symptoms because um, – where it started for me now retrospectively as I look back on this was when I was about 15 or 16 because I started taking antibiotics for my acne. My dad had pretty bad acne when he was growing up as a teenager and when all of the usual over-the-counter kind of creams and gels and things that I was putting on my face weren't working, I reverted to a suggestion that my dad made out of innocence and love for his son, which was, hey, you should try what I did if everything else fails and take these antibiotics. So I took this low dose doxycycline antibiotic and I stayed on that because it got rid of my my acne for about five years from around the age of uh, I can't recall exactly it was 15 or 16 through to 20 or 21 I was in I was well into university when I stopped this low dose antibiotic treatment and that ruined all of my gut bacteria and I had no idea and not one doctor ever warned me when I was getting prescription after prescription that perhaps you might want to stop no one ever said that it was just my own kind of curiosity as to what might happen if I stopped taking this antibiotic treatment for my acne. And at 20 or 21, I thought, you know, let's take the risk. Let's stop after five years and see if the acne comes back. And yeah. um, and the acne Look, didn't. Sorry, just to start yeah. you there, was there anything that like triggered you to make that decision or did you start to feel ill or anything like no, that? Side effect? No, no, I just thought common sense was starting to prevail that I'd been on these antibiotics for a very long period of time. And maybe the hormonal phase of my life where acne is prevalent, you know, in your teenage years, maybe it won't be there anymore if I stop taking it. So it was just like, let's just, you know, review after five years yeah. and see. <laughs> and um, nothing happened when I stopped taking them. Like my skin had evidently cleared up some time ago and I'd probably been on the antibiotics for at least uh, at least six or 12 or months or longer than what I needed to be. And throughout my 20s, I therefore had a lot of digestive issues and I never connected this all together until the digestive issues led to rheumatoid arthritis. And then uh, subsequently, I did a tremendous amount of research and self guinea pigging for years until I pieced it all together and uh, got off much more serious drugs than antibiotics later and got to a point where I'm off now, which is off all the drugs and, uh, and teaching other people about all the stuff to do with the relationship between the gut and rheumatoid arthritis or other autoimmune diseases. Mm. And can you just for, you know, the everyday person who might not even know, you know, some of the symptoms or, or what mm. rheumatoid arthritis is. Can you break that down for us a bit? Yeah. So I didn't even know what it was when I got diagnosed, which was at age 31. I just turned 31 and I just turned 41 now. So it was 10 years ago and I didn't know anything about it, but people have probably seen some of the gnarly hands on by accident on YouTube, if not YouTube, on uh, Google, if they've searched uh, for something and 
hands are all screwed up and and twisted and and gnarly, I guess is the right word. And so fingers are often first implicated. You see like swollen joints and then the the joints begin to sort of bend a little bit out out of shape. And then all joints can be affected. So knees and elbows and I had it in my jaw and my chest bone and I had it in my feet and ankles and elbows. I had surgery on my left elbow. I had you know, my knee needed a knee replacement. Fortunately, I didn't end up following that up. And now the knee is perfectly uh, usable without pain. And so it just gets into the joints and the body as an autoimmune disease attacks itself. So in multiple sclerosis, the body attacks the nerve endings uh, and it impairs the, uh, the normal functionality of that part of the body. And with rheumatoid arthritis, it attacks the joints. And in uh, other autoimmune diseases, it attacks other parts of the body, but it's a self-attack. So it's a sort of hideous okay. kind of thing because as you're going through it, you you kind of have this this frustration where you're sort of trapped in your own self-attack that feels so, so awful because, you know, you can't blame anything other than your own body. And that's just a, a very, very uncomfortable state of mind yeah Yeah. and so when you when you get the diagnosis at 31 i take it you know a doctor's told you this is what you have what what sort of treatments like treatment options do they give you at the time like what does that mean to a 31 year old who's diagnosed yeah so i walked in i had to wait a couple of months to get my first appointment with my rheumatologist and I walked in very optimistically because I'd never had any health condition of any kind. I'd never even broken a bone before. So, yeah. you know, I felt pretty invincible, 31. My career with stand-up was going great. I'd been on TV a bunch of times recently. I I think I, you know, I felt kind of like a 31-year-old guy who's got a good career, single, you know. I kind of yeah. thought things are moving pretty good. A bit <laughs> of joint pain here and some in my fingers and feet. This isn't going to be too bad. But the... GP had sent me off to the rheumatologist with a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. And after waiting a couple of months to see the rheumatologist, you know, in that period, I'd done my own research and I thought, look, it's not going to be as bad as what everyone says on the internet because, you know, it just can't be that bad. I, you know, I, I have a feeling that the general population of sensationalists and, and pessimists and, just a big negative bunch and especially when you get them all together online with a problem you know they'll they'll yeah really really Bring take out it the worst really other. take it to a new level and so i've gone into the rheumatologist and looked to my left and looked to my right in the waiting room and there's people in their 60s and 70s and i'm thinking look you know i'm in the wrong place this isn't meant to be the rheumatologist shook my hand very gently which was much appreciated because it, and and I, at the time i thought this guy's got no clout, you know, this guy's, <laughs> this guy's a weak dude. But, uh, and then as I sat down and he sat down, you know, it struck me, now hang on, it wasn't because of his sort of character, it's because he was being sort of cautious as to what my hand yeah, might feel like. And that wasn't a good feeling either. It, it made me, oh, I mean, I'm in a place where people go when they have pain. And it was starting to dawn on me in the first meeting because he talked about the drugs, which was your question. The drugs they talk about, there's the over-the-counter stuff, which is what everyone grabs for, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which we know as Voltaren and Advil and ibuprofen and stuff like that. Now, against a disease as monstrous as rheumatoid, these things don't play a big enough role in trying to keep the pain at bay. And in fact, as part of what I teach, they are actually counterproductive in that they actually aggravate the gut, which is the source or the underlying cause of the problem. So the first thing people do is actually worsen their disease by grabbing painkillers, right? So it's very tragic. Yes, yes, right? Now, all the science backs this up, by the way. Everything that I'll say to you, I can back up with a with a scientific journal paper and say, here's the study, go and look at it. X number of people with rheumatoid arthritis went through this, they took those drugs, and now they're worse. You'll see for yourself, right? So I can back all this up. So to continue, there's the non-steroidal drugs, but then there are drugs like uh, sort of mega painkillers, which are things like pregnazone, right, a steroid. And then they move into the disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs like sulfasalazine and methotrexate, which was the one that was suggested for me. And there's a number of others. 
And then it can get really, really nasty or really, really good, depending on which side of the fence, which side of the desk in the um, in the doctor's <laughs> room you sit. Yeah. Doctors are in love with the new, well, not, not not new, in the last decade, a group of drugs called biologic drugs, which are the highest grossing revenue drugs on the planet. Treating autoimmune diseases has become the uh, the cash cow of the pharmaceutical industry. So the doctors uh, look towards biologic drugs to control patients whose condition is sort of uncontrollable on the medications. But, you know, some of them have an increased risk of cancer by 300% and they cause you to catch every flu and every every little infection going around because they basically turn off your immune system. So they're your options. I went on to the methotrexate and at 31, uh, you know, I thought, look, I might be able to knock this on the head myself. I went away and did a whole bunch of natural stuff for 12 months and it was a disaster. I I went to every naturopath and homeopath and Chinese herbalist and everyone I could find and they all all did a a great job trying to help, but I I got really bad uh, really quick and um, went on the methotrexate and... At this point in the story, that just slowed down my worsening but did not stop it. So I might take a break and let you uh, jump in or I can keep going, whatever you like. Totally. I mean, it's so interesting and and I guess for a lot of people, you know, it is that question, do I go for medication or do I go for natural therapies? And I think, you know, trying both is probably the best approach, at least initially, if you don't know enough about it. But it sounds like, you know, along the way, then you started to discover other ways of healing yourself and and in particular foods. And I'm really interested in that part of the story. And I guess, you know, my first question is when and how did you discover like the healing nature of foods and what you were putting in your body as having a huge effect or, or yeah, benefit to slowing down your disease? Mm-hmm. Well, it happened by accident. And I, what happened was I had a bout of food poisoning to some unwashed imported cherries. And, oh. you know, I'd been toying with my diet because I found a couple of books and there were only two written that were published on Amazon where people had described a recovery from rheumatoid arthritis and they both used food as their mechanism. Now, both had radically different diets. One of them was a raw vegan approach and the other one was based on, you know, blood tests and um, food sensitivities and stuff like that. Both of them I tried and failed really badly, like on both of them. However, it had it had piqued my interest that if these two people are claiming that it had to do with food, you know, no one else out there is is yeah. written a book on a recovery, and and so yeah. we got two twos all I got to work with, and they both went down the food path, and so I had been experimenting with foods, and we hear things like you know cherries are good anti-inflammatory foods, or maybe you need to you know take fish oils, and you know I was just trying these various things, but I had a bout of food poisoning, and I was you know, purging from both ends for 24 hours and lying in the bed and I couldn't get up without, you know, feeling sick. So I just stayed in the bed except for quick trips to the toilet. And with rheumatoid arthritis, you've got to move your joints all the time because when they stop moving, they get more inflamed and more stiff and sore. And so I thought, you know, I was in self-pity mode and I was lying in the bed, not just from the, you know, purging, but also from from the thoughts that I was going to be so much worse when I actually uh, got out of bed because I'm not moving at all. But on the contrary, in the 24 hours, virtually all the pain went away. And this was a like a, the most, you know, the light bulb moment of my whole life because what's going on? And so I thought, you know, all I need to do is work out how to get these results without having to vomit and diarrhea for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not a good option. (laughs) Okay. And so what I did is I then, because the pain all came back when I started eating again. It's just 100% like came back again. And so then I thought, well, is it the vomiting and diarrhea or is it just when I'm empty? And so I repeated the experiment and just stopped eating. About a week later or two weeks later, I just stopped eating for a couple of days and um, all the pain went away again. And I said, okay, well, got nothing to do with how the body's empty it's just if the body's empty you get no pain and so I thought this is interesting so I then started to refine my research of the scientific literature because I am actually a laser physicist with a first class honors degree by my background right 
among your other talents. Yeah, you just, know? yeah, you know, yeah, I know I've I've got the weirdest sort of career <laughs> path. But yeah, yeah, it's a weird one. But look, it served me very well for mm. being able to tackle this problem because the other way that my, you know, stand-up comedy career has served me very well is that I only had to work for maybe an hour or two a week. Okay. And so, you know, I'm, I'm doing, I do a, like a corporate level income from doing my stand up comedy because I work for companies. I go and charge right. them a solid amount of cash to be able to entertain them safely and cleanly, but you know, <laughs> hilariously yeah, for half an hour at a time. Right. And so I've got that unique skill set, And so that enabled me to, you know, cover my lifestyle expenses and so forth. And just work a couple hours a week. So I've got this research background and a lot of time mm. and a big problem. And so working through the scientific literature, I found that it was actually well documented that people with rheumatoid arthritis, when they went on fasting, dramatically improved. And so I thought, well, it's not just me. And this was huge because then I thought, first of all, I thought, hey, this is something my doctor doesn't know. No one told me this, right? Mm. Secondly, it's got to be a gut issue because if you stop eating and it goes away, you don't need any more evidence. I mean, it's 100% a gut issue, yeah. all right? Okay. And, yeah. and then thirdly, I thought this problem is bigger than me because this is not just me trying to improve my pain and improve my life. But if this fasting situation happens with everyone with RA, then if I can work out how to fix this problem. I can help so many people. Like the numbers are staggering. And that's when I took things mentally to a new level and I thought this could be like the biggest discovery ever. And so I thought, you know, just do anything it takes to try and understand what's going on. Plus the drug that I was on, methotrexate, didn't allow me to have children. And so I desperately wanted to have a family. And so everything was aligned to try and overcome. The stakes sounded like they were pretty high for you at that stage. The stakes could not have been higher. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as you're saying about the fasting, you know, in one of your – in one of your videos on YouTube, you know, you do say in your presentation, like being hungry is healing. Mm. And I love that. And it sounds like, you know, the first couple of days in your program, which I want to get into more are all about, are they, is it just juicing or is it fasting altogether? Or tell me a bit about that. So first of all, yeah, the quote comes from Dr. Hiromi Shinya, who's the author of The Enzyme Factor. And the quote is, you should make friends with gentle hunger. And the Japanese have an elegant way of, of putting a lot of things. And I've, I've really, really taken that quote to heart because when we're not eating, the body has an opportunity to use its enzymes to repair and nurture the body. But when we are digesting food, the body takes metabolic enzymes, which are enzymes that exist throughout the body to to service the myriad of different requirements that the body has for enzymes, everything from blinking to breathing to growing hair, everything requires enzymes. In the process of digesting food, the body has to take a lot of those resources and it converts those metabolic enzymes into digestive enzymes to assist to break down food like little scissors. So when we're not digesting food, the body is in a healing state. So the first two days of my program is a just a two-day cleanse where you don't consume any food of any substance. But, you you know, we I do encourage people to eat a lot of leafy greens, just plain leafy greens, just like your Chinese bok choys and mixed leaves of all kinds. Doesn't matter. As long as it's green and it grew, it's good, right? Mm. And that's just to help a little bit with a little bit of, of, of movement through the bowels to, uh, sure. to create a little bit of um uh, activity doesn't normally trigger much, but, uh, but at least something's being a little bit like a, a gentle broom moving some, some stuff through. Mm. But there's actually a, a, a more important reason to do the two-day cleanse at the start, and that's because people become believers when they go through the two days. Mm. They need to have the cherry incident that I yeah. had. They need right. to see it for themselves to realize that this whole time, for the last 
five, 10, in some cases, 30 years, they've been eating their way into pain every single day. Mm, that's, yeah. I love that. It's, um, I talk a lot about with my health coaching clients being on a spectrum, you know, for, for people who come in, mums who just want to lose some baby weight and get fit and those sorts, of, you know, create a healthy lifestyle for their family. You know, maybe we just eat some more fruits and veggies and introduce whole grains and those sorts of things. And then for people who come in from their cardiologist with heart disease or prediabetes or whatever, then, you know, we go 100% whole food plant-based. And one of the benefits of doing that so quickly, as you're just saying, is they see the benefits so quickly. So they're so much more likely to stick at it and yeah, yeah make, make it a sustainable thing rather than, you know, oh, I can see benefits slowly, but I'm not sure which thing actually had the biggest effect or, you know. Yeah. Yeah, really, yeah. really cool way of doing it. I prefer to go all in at the start because the results, as you just said, are motivating. But um if you just ask people, oh, just for a few weeks, just drop out dairy and then, okay, for another few weeks, now that you've lost the dairy, also say take out vegetable oils or something like that, which for people with RA is very inflammatory. And so mm-hmm. your improvements are not happening quick enough for them to get excited because they might be doing a whole bunch of other stuff over those two weeks too that other people have suggested to them, like, yeah. oh, you need to increase this while change that. And it gets confusing. But yeah. if you make an abrupt truncation to their existing diet and interrupt that suddenly with a low-fat plant-based diet and the improvements happen within two, three days, mm-hmm. suddenly they're fans, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about the protocol? Like what what's the main premise behind it or, you know, what are the yeah. main you're teaching people? Well, if you were to summarize it, because we haven't got all day, let's go with the 80, <laughs> we'll go with the 80 20 principle. What, what, yeah. what 20% of it gives 80% of the results? Okay. And then yeah. the other, all the detail beyond that is very helpful, but it's probably beyond the scope of this call. Sure. So using the 80 20 principle, I'd say that the 20% of it that has the biggest results is it's got to be absolutely 100% must be low fat. Mm. Now, fat is an aggravator to the gut wall. Fat causes more leaky gut. And so with people with rheumatoid arthritis, this is catastrophic because the particles that are causing the antibodies to be created to their own flesh comes about through undigested proteins from food and bacteria that are leaking into their gut. Mm. And so we do not want to aggravate a leaky gut situation through additional fat. Now, this doesn't mean we eat a no-fat diet. Everybody understands that we need healthy fats in our body, especially for healthy brain function and for just for, you know, they're not called essential for nothing, right? Mm. And so we just want to get those fats through natural plant sources and not add additional heavy fat loads to the body. Now, by definition, this means that we must eliminate animal products Mm. because all animal products are high in fat. It's easy to see this more so when we look at, you know, uh, say milks and cheeses and and the dairy side of things because in the States, you know, they try to get away with this by they saying, you know, it's 1% fat on their milks and stuff like that, but not as a percentage of calories. It's still very high in fat as a percentage of calories. They talk as a percentage of volume or I forget the exact trick that they use, but Mm. if you're drinking any sort of uh, dairy product, sorry, drinking or eating it, it's, it's too high in fat. People think, well, what about like lean chicken, you know, without and skinless, right? But it's still 30% fat because as a percentage of calories, all the fat is inside the muscles, uh, muscle cells. So you cannot consume anything from an animal without taking in too much fat, all right? So we've got to get rid of it. It's not like, oh, I'd like to, or, or maybe we can eat half as much. If my approach is to get the maximum results you can possibly get. I don't want to do half-hearted. I want stuff that's life-changing. So if we want life-changing, then we have to eliminate the the animal products. Now, where it gets a little bit, you know, argumentative amongst, um, you know, some folks is regarding the vegetable oils. But the bottom line is 
give me 100 people with rheumatoid, give 50 of them vegetable oils, even in small doses, uh, and give the other 50, take them off the vegetable oils, I will guarantee you that the 50 that aren't on the vegetable oils are going to do better. It's as simple as that, right? It's because it's pure fat and it aggravates the gut by creating more of a leaky gut situation. Now, for most of us, a leaky gut to some degree is a natural part of existence because the way that our body transports nutrients from our lumen, from our intestines into our bloodstream is via the gut wall, right? So it's not like leaky gut or a permeable gut wall is a bad thing. In fact, we wouldn't last more than a week if it didn't actually happen, yeah, right? Sure. It's just that we don't want it to happen to a degree that the wrong particles, the larger particles, are getting into our bloodstream. Right. Now, the vegetable oils tend to be especially bad at causing more of this. So we've got to eliminate those. And that includes people's favorites like olive oil and flaxseed oil. And you can't cook stir fry in coconut oil, even though we talk about high boiling points. Forget it. Just get off the oils. So we're, that takes care of a lot of the problem, right? So mm -hmm. if anyone listening with rheumatoid arthritis just does what I've just said, they are probably going to reduce 50% of their symptoms within a week for the rest of their life. That's amazing. <laughs> amazing. Right? Honestly, like I just I cannot believe that we don't get to all this stuff, you know? It's, it's phenomenal. But anyway, continue. You're providing Crazy. immense value for every person. Right, right. Okay, good. That's what I like. Big value bombs, dropping them. Okay, so that's the thing. Now, the next thing is not excess protein. So the issue is that it's the proteins that are being attacked in the body's tissues, okay? The proteins are the enemy. So we don't want to fuel the bloodstream with heaps and heaps of undigested protein, because what that does is it sends out the troops again. It releases the antibodies from the body to go and start attacking once more. So it's kind of like if you've got, if there's a wild dog that lives on the house in the, gar in the, in the yard at the end of the street, and every day you walk past it, banging the cymbals together and screaming at the dog, it's going to get really mad every time it sees you and rah, 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 it goes crazy, right? And so the idea needs to be that we need to try and reduce the screaming and the symbols when we're around that dog as much as possible. So we want to make a wide arc around the dog. We don't want to carry the symbols. We don't want to make a sound. The noises all come from eating too much, particularly animal protein, but also plant-based protein when we're having that stuff enter our bloodstream. And so to avoid that, we need to Make sure we go by the dog less frequently, and when we do, we do it quietly. And then after a period of time, at some point in the future, that dog will allow us to walk past without going nuts because it now associates us as a calm person who's walking by, who's not there to aggravate it. And mm -hmm. such is the situation with the gentle restoration of the body after it doesn't have all the crap entering the body and, and consequently the bloodstream. So I encourage people to certainly meet their daily requirements of protein. And I've been exceeding it for the longest time. And, you know, this isn't as important as the fat side of things, but it, um, it's, it's one to consider if someone's trying to supplement their diet at the moment with protein powders you know, in the worst possible way would be through a, you know, a dairy base, like a whey protein powder is like atrocious. But uh, even on the plant-based ones, I, I encourage people to be careful because these proteins are going to end up in the blood while people still have a, a bad digestive system and could act as an aggravator for their existing symptoms. So we really need much less protein than everyone thinks. We're protein obsessed as a as a community. You know, the studies have been done. The human body really only needs about 26 grams of protein a day, as long as it's throughout you know, a mixture of the correct all amino acids in the right combo. But they went ahead and World Health Organization simply doubled it. Just to be just to be sure, let's just double it to 
54, 52 grams a day. Okay, so now that we've doubled the minimum at 54 or 56 or 50, I forget the exact number, you know, everyone's doing like 150 or 200, right? It's extreme amount of, of over-protein consumption. And all that protein has to be filtered out through the body. It becomes a waste product, right? It's a, All protein is acidifying for the body, which is another area of, of teaching that I, um, that I have, yeah. Mm. And so I'm going to ask you, because not for me, but because I am plant-based, but for all the people that aren't plant-based out there, I'm going to ask you the most hated question by vegans or plant-based people. If I'm not getting my protein through animal products or whey protein powders or plant-based protein powders, where where do I get my protein? Where am I going to go for this daily recommendation? You know, the I guess the low side of the daily recommendation that you're suggesting. So it's impossible to not meet your daily protein requirements if you meet your energy requirements and you eat a range of different foods. It's just awesome. that simple, right? Cool. It's that easy. Protein requirements, as I've just mentioned a minute ago, is one of the it's one of the easiest things we can meet. Have you ever met someone who's not met their protein? Have you ever met a deficient person in protein? They don't exist. They don't yeah. exist. Like. For instance, two foods that I recommend as early in our program are buckwheat and quinoa, okay? Mm. Now, quinoa is something like 26% protein and buckwheat something similar. Like they're very high in protein. And I know that I've made an earlier um, comment about exceeding protein requirements, but something odd and magical goes on with these two pseudo grains, right? Because they're not actually you know, grains as we think of wheat and barley and oats and stuff like that. The alkalizing effects that they have because of their mineral content offset the acidifying effects that protein creates in the body to neutralize them as a food. So they're a magic little little thing. But if we, like I just gave a training video the other day that I actually posted out this morning to my mailing list. But if you only ate rice all day to meet your daily requirement of calories so you just ate basmati rice or jasmine rice all day mm-hmm. i do believe if i haven't rubbed it off my whiteboard i'll just check <laughs> i think it's on the other side i think it's 70 grams of protein you get if you only ate rice and nothing yeah. else just to meet your daily like eight and a half thousand kilojoules a day or two you know three thousand calories per day whichever unit system you like you're right you can't okay. avoid protein in fact, yeah. if you were worried about high protein intake, you got a serious problem because you can't get away from protein. It's everywhere. It'll get into you. Be careful. You're going to overload. Yeah. Right? That's interesting. Yeah. It's the opposite problem. And I problem. think that, that'll be kind of news to a lot of people because, you know, we're just brainwashed and fed this misinformation, I guess, that you need to get your protein and especially if you're going to the gym and, you know, I'm like, oh, God, let's try unlearn everything we know mm. and start from scratch almost. Yeah, 100%. And just by the and- way, you mentioned the gym. I gained three kilos in less than a month once just by eating pretty much rice, greens, and orange juice, huh. right? You would look at that and you say, well, that person's going to like, you know, it was just, it will mean it's easy to gain weight at the gym, Yeah, muscle. And it's easy to lose weight. If, again, you bring me 100 overweight people, I'll, I'll give you 100 people who shed weight easily by eating a low-fat plant-based diet. Mm, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a no-brainer. So on your program, do you actually give people like meal plans and recipes and all that sort of thing? Yeah, it's yeah, critical because you deviate just a little bit and everything falls over. Just going back to the oils, for instance, my wife was putting olive oil on my salad when we were in the experimental phase and trying to work out how to eat. And uh, I felt like I was doing everything right and I couldn't work it out. It took me like at least six months of each night having oils on my salad before eventually I said, honey, I know you love me. I know you want me to eat my salad and you're putting this on me, putting this oil on there because you think think it's going to make me want to enjoy my salad more. Mm. I said, but I just got to not have it one night and just see what happens. I've eliminated everything else and sure enough, it was the oils. And so there's a lot of things like that. You know, for instance, I you know, I have a whole reintroduction guide, which is a step-by-step, you know, week-by-week process that people can follow based on 
the experience that I had, the scientific literature, and also the experience of now thousands of people that I've worked with with this condition and just started to see in anecdotal ways general trends for foods that that work and don't work. Yeah, awesome. Some harmless foods that are super healthy for healthy people like avocados and olives, because they are high in fat, even though they're plant-based foods, they need to be postponed to later in the program. And other super healthy foods that are wonderful for people who are otherwise healthy, like oats for breakfast. Cereal grains are a big problem for people with rheumatoid. And so they need to be postponed a long way into the program as well. So for anyone who doesn't have any obvious chronic health condition, I encourage people have oatmeal for breakfast as the healthiest possible meal. Without dairy, I encourage people to have not gluten-free, just standard run-of-the-mill, not Uncle Toby's or some heavily processed, just simply oats out of the bag, 100% oats for breakfast with boiling water, pour it over the top and uh, and and using some um, fruits for flavor. Or if some people aren't strictly vegan, then, you know, they can put maybe honey on that if they're not strict vegans or they could put, uh, you know, maple syrup or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that is a very, very, very great way to start the day. Absolutely. Mm. The way I start my day every morning. Is that so right? That's good. Awesome. Um, I, can't, I can't not ask you the question about success stories. Like can you give mm. us a couple of examples of some people who have gone through your program because, I, I, you know, as everyone, I love hearing success stories and, and the impact that these sorts of things are having on people. Yeah, yeah. I, I should just hit screen record on and then play them on the video or something that we're, we're doing now because, you know, when you see them tell their own stories, it's it's yeah. more powerful. But let me just pick a couple. In fact, one that makes me emotional is the only time I've cried on a podcast and it just hits me in the heart every time because it's one thing, it's one thing for adults, but it's another entirely for kids, all right? Mm-hmm. And so we had... Uh, one woman recently uh, come on the podcast with her son, Cole, and this one broke me apart because her little boy, you know, he's only six years old and uh, rheumatoid arthritis can strike at any age because it's not, it's not got to do with old age arthritis. It's, you know, as I said, it's autoimmune and autoimmunity is something that can happen at any age. It yeah. tends to happen later because it takes a lifetime to stuff yourself up on the inside. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but through reasons that, are not entirely obvious, though I have my my suggestions or my my thoughts on this. It can happen to kids through no fault of the parents, through you know just through bad luck in a lot of ways. But a set of set of triggers can can be at play that causes it to happen in in young boys and girls. So he was able to because of his outstanding parenting, be very well controlled through our program, but making the changes to it that I recommend because it's not for kids. But um, with parental supervision, uh, it can be done uh, carefully and controlled in in an accelerated way because, um, you know, kids still growing and there's things that need to be taken into account for best practice. So he was staring down the barrel of all the adult drugs, methotrexate, all this other stuff. I mean, some really serious, heavy stuff. And the kid now is absolutely perfect, not on any drugs. And his whole family now eats predominantly a plant-based diet. And it's just makes me, you know, that, you know, that alone makes what I went through worth it. Just that, to change that family's life, that child's life from such a young age onwards. And because I know his mom and I, I've gotten to know the way that she thinks, I know that this is a life change it's not something that's mm-hmm. oh now he's better let's go and get him on bacon i mean that's not how she's thinking she knows the importance to stay clean with him and to 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 keep him on track for life because you know it's not something you want to mess with so that's one there's a i mean on our website pattersonprogram.com we got a ton up there people can watch the the uh the videos of people telling their stories you know yeah, pe- cool. women putting their wedding rings on for the first time in 10 years oh. you know 
girls oh, running. Sure. They haven't run for years and now able to run on the beach. Or wow. Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting. And now some of our clients are now inspiring others. And so they've created Instagram accounts or they've written books, all sorts of really cool stuff. And that's what I'm hoping can be the next phase is that it can create a platform where other people can then spread their own message and be pioneers to educating their doctors and their rheumatologists and helping other people through their stories. So I'm hoping that it can really blossom and and um, everyone can take part in this yeah, pioneering journey where we're trying to educate the medical community of what can be done with diet, exercise, and maybe a few supplements. Mm, amazing. Mm. The you know one question I really like to ask my guests, and I won't take up too much more of your time. But are there any you know people who have I guess health professionals or, or otherwise that have been really influential in your journey, or books or resources apart obviously from your program that you can recommend other people get their hands on? Yeah, yeah. Um, I really love. Uh, I mentioned him before, Dr. Shinya. So that's the enzyme factor. So T H E enzyme factor, and that's on Amazon. He's got a subsequent book or a follow-up book called The Microbe Factor that if you're a big fan of his first book, you might want to read. There's a bit of repetitive content in there, but The Enzyme Factor, I think, is a is a bit of a classic. Um, and then anything by Dr. McDougall. So we've been very niche in this chat about rheumatoid arthritis, but Dr. McDougall, he's the gun. I mean, really, uh, I just love how he's such a straight shooter. He can, he can put people's noses out of joint because he tells things <laughs> really straight up and down. Yeah, he said some things on my podcast that were. Oh, I loved that episode. <laughs> it was so good. I was walking on the treadmill at the gym, going, "Yes, these guys are awesome." Yeah, he went pretty hardcore, <laughs> but you know, why not? I mean, that's how he feels, and and why not say it in ways that shake people up a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. because if we get vanilla flavor messages all the time, we take vanilla flavored action, which is not much, right? So we need to shake things up. We need to put some sort of accountability back onto people who are feeling that, you know, oh, the medical system will take care of me. That's a load of crap. Doctors are going to, to work within the parameters of their training and their training is medication mm. and uh, referrals to surgeries and so forth. And that's fair enough. But if that's not what you want, then it's not, you're not going to get the sort of information that you're seeking at the doctor, right? So yeah. it's just, look, doctors have the hardest job in the world. I would hate to be a doctor. Think everyone comes in with the worst problems in the world, totally in pain, totally like life's over, like this is shocking. Please, please, please help me. You're my greatest authority. You're the biggest trust mm -hmm. of any job within society. And you say, well, take pills, you know, take drugs, you know, and then the person's like, but that's not what I want. But the doctor can only give you that. So, yeah, yeah, it's frustrating. I mean, poor doctor, especially because, you know, I've got some people who are in the medical profession who are followers of what I teach. And, um, and it's, it's, it's great because I can work with them so that they can work with their right. colleagues. And, yeah, hopefully it can – I'm really fingers crossed for everyone uh, that they continue to be so – you know, open-minded to, yeah, to what I'm doing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely something I'm really passionate about. I, I have a background as a social worker in hospitals for, for many years. And, you know, since retraining as a health coach and kind of putting all my skill set together, I, I'm so passionate about medical professionals and coaches working together. Because as you say, like the doctors, I don't think it's their fault. It's just they don't have any training in this stuff, in the nutrition and, you know, the power of, I get the healing power of food. So if we can combine our skills and work closely together, then the doctor can, you know, prescribe if necessary or if that's what the patient wants. And if they do want to take an alternative, like you know, a cardiologist I'm working with, he's got heaps of people that are like, I don't want to go on the drugs, just yeah. like you said. So he's like, cool, we'll go and see Anna and she'll coach you how to change your diet and lifestyle. Go down that route. Like he doesn't care. He just wants them to get better and he doesn't know how to do it that way. So it's great that there are people out there that are, yeah, have the skill set to do that. So yeah. I think that's really powerful. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, we need every doctor in that we can possibly get, but we also need information that currently they're not uh, able to share with us. So my goal and my kind of vision for the future, um, I'm working on publishing our book that's currently up until now only been available online. We originally put our our book online as a bit of a trial just to see, you know, whether or not it'd be of interest to people. And we've been so busy from when we started doing that sort of four and a half years ago that we've never had time to actually mm-hmm. then sit down and work on a published book. I, it's just so remarkably painstakingly long, the process of actually publishing a book. I mean, God, it's a, it's a lot more work. And so anyway, I'm in the process of doing that now, but the vision is that I hope that our book will be sitting on the shelf of every rheumatologist office around the world. And so my vision for the future is that someone, when they get diagnosed with RA, if they walk into their rheumatologist's office at some point in the future, they can sit down and the doctor says, tell me about your diet. And the rheumatologist listens to that person. And if they're not on a low-fat plant-based diet already, they will say, read this book. This will explain all the relationships between the science, the gut, the disease, and how it all links together. Come back in two months, and if your symptoms are still significant, then we will assess what medications to take in parallel to the Patterson program. Mm. Okay? Not the way that things are currently done, which is, hey, welcome, here's methotrexate. And if it doesn't work, here's a biologic in 12 months' time. Yeah. It's just, for me, that's a flawed system. Absolutely. So that's my goal. And to have a low-cost $20 book sitting on the shelf for everyone to be able to either buy themselves or be handed at the, at the doctors, I think that, you know, there's a different future for patients with RA if that gets put in place. So that's what I'm hoping to achieve. And I know I have a lot of people who I work with and and who listen to the podcast who have RA who are going to help drive that for me and take a book and take it to their rheumatologists and talk to their rheumatologists. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, Clint, you're an amazing human. You are generous with your time. I really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Anna. It's a privilege and I'm really grateful that you uh, had me on and uh, I hope that this you know, reaches a lot of people who need it. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, have a good day. Get back to your gorgeous child and I will hopefully connect with you again soon. Thanks so much. Okay, see ya. You've been listening to The Patterson Program. For more information, visit pattersonprogram.com.